Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 7 of the UK's first Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. In May and June, the Information Commissioner published 57 Freedom of Information decisions, whilst the Information Tribunal published 6. I'm here to guide you through some of these. In this episode, we will be examining decisions about disclosure of information on empty properties, job evaluation criteria, a council's vehicle towing policy, a hospital's audit report, the retirement packages of senior officers, and details of premium bond winners. We also have comment and analysis from Andrew Morn, who recently represented his council in an appeal to the Information Tribunal. Section 11 of the Freedom of Information Act allows the applicant to express a preference as to the way he wants information to be communicated. This was examined in the case involving Bath and North East Somerset Council, dated the 17th of May 2007. Although the council disclosed the information it held, the complainant remained dissatisfied with how it had been presented. He requested the council to resend the information, but in a different format. The council concluded that it would simply be resending the same information to that already provided. The commissioner agreed. He ruled that Section 11 of the Act could not be applied in this case as the complainant made no specific request to receive the information in a particular format at the time of making his initial request to the council. The commissioner also stressed that Section 11 relates to the means by which information is communicated to the applicant, for example by letter or email, as opposed to the actual format in which the information is presented. This decision will assist those public authorities to refuse requests where the applicant wants information in a particular format, for example a graph or an Excel spreadsheet. In July 2006, the Information Commissioner ruled that Bexley Council had to disclose the details of empty properties in its area, together with the reasons why the properties were empty and who owns them. The Council had relied on the exemption in Section 31 of the Act that its release would prejudice the prevention of crime. It argued the release of the information would attract those wishing to commit acts of burglary, squatting and vandalism. The Commissioner was not convinced that this would be a direct consequence of disclosure and, in any event, the public interest lay in disclosure. This decision caused great concern amongst local authorities who believed that their empty properties would be at risk and details of them would end up on websites which encourage squatting. On the 10th of May, the Information Tribunal heard Bexley Council's appeal from this decision. In England and London Borough of Bexley and the Information Commissioner, the Tribunal ruled that those properties owned by anyone other than individuals should be disclosed together with details of ownership. Whilst it accepted, contrary to the Commissioner's view, that Section 31 was engaged, it ruled that the public interest in disclosure was greater. However, details of properties owned by individuals should not be disclosed as it was personal data and so was exempt under Section 40. Disclosure of this information would be unfair to the individuals as their properties may be targeted by criminals. The Tribunal also made observations about whether information could be said to be reasonably accessible under Section 21 of the Act just because it may be registered at the Land Registry. With me to discuss this decision is Andrew Morn, Assistant Director Legal Services at the London Borough of Bexley. Andrew represented the Council at the hearing. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Why did you feel that you had to challenge the Information Commissioner's decision? When we 
first got the request in and we first started discussing it internally, I, th I think it's fair to say that immediately we were concerned about the uh, criminal aspects of, of the request in the sense that um, the request was asking for information, which I think as officers at Bexley, we immediately thought may have crime and disorder implications with it, with it to be released. Therefore, we always were of the view that there were issues about this request. So we initially declined it on the grounds of uh, Section 31 exemption. And as, as it went through the process, it was inter internally appealed here, so it was looked at afresh by someone else. They came to the same conclusion. When we got the decision from the Information Commission, I think we were surprised at it. Primarily, we were surprised that they concluded that the exemption wasn't engaged at all. That was a big surprise. Um, and then, of course, as a result of that decision by them, they didn't think on the balance it should be withheld, therefore the order disclosure. So it was primarily, I think, the same reasons, the reason we appealed was the same reason we turned it down at the start. We genuinely felt that there were crime and disorder implications if this information was released to the general public. And we bore in mind that it wasn't just releasing it to Mr England, who's bona fide, for, not for one second did we question. But as we all know, when you release under the Freedom of Information Act, you effectively publish at large. So we were concerned about that, and we thought that individuals who give us this information for a specific reason, this reason being council tax, should have that information protected. What do you believe are the key learning points of this decision by the Information Tribunal? Uh, as a matter of law, if you like, uh, looking at their decision, I think the key issues are, firstly, they give a very interesting and helpful run-through how you balance on which these exemptions, particularly Section 31, are engaged, um, whilst no criticism of the Information Commissioner officer, because Hogan, the case Hogan, was decided after she'd given her decision, but I think she'd got it wrong and she put far too high a um, burden on the council. So it's useful for sort of um, describing the sort of thinking that one has to go through before this, uh, such an exemption is engaged. So that's the first learning point from it. The second learning point from it, I think, is in relation to the um, personal information decision that it's come to, in the sense that it's, uh, again, I think there are previous cases about this, but the way it's accepted that you link two pieces of information, i.e. address, uh, to name, and once you've linked them and they're both held by the council, then it becomes personal data. So I think it's useful on the personal data. And it's also quite useful in the sense that um, the decision of the tribunal is that squatting and crime are linked. Quite rightly, no party said this, and I'm sure it isn't the case, that squatting always is criminal. It's not. In fact, there can be rare occasions, I think, where it can be quite positive. But effectively, overall, there is a link, and it's useful in that sense because it, we had some quite thorough evidence from some very well-known um, individuals in the field of housing who themselves did accept that there can be a link. So taken together, there's some useful things come out of it and uh, useful bits for when uh, further freedom of information requests are received. I noticed that the tribunal also had something to say about Section 21 in relation to registered properties. Um, can you just expand a bit on that, please? This wasn't a part of the case, I think, that the Council were massively concerned about. This related to the fact that the original decision by the Information Commissioner was that Mr England wasn't entitled to the names of the individuals who owned these empty, long-term empty properties. All he was entitled to was the address, and they based that on the fact that he could go to the um, 
uh, land registry and the exemption about available elsewhere under the Act and get the information there. But what came out in evidence, of course, is that how likely you are to find uh, the address of a property, the name of an owner of a property, depends very much on, for example, the sort of how often that property has been bought and sold. And the point he made, which I think was accepted by the tribunal, is that quite often these long-term empty properties may well have been owned by people who are who now passed away, who are very elderly. The, the property hasn't changed hands for decades, and therefore that information wasn't there. So the tribunal decided that uh, we should release that information as well. But as I said, it wasn't something which was prime. It wasn't a primary motivation for the council that particular issue. I noticed that you didn't argue the point about council tax data not being used or being able to be used for other purposes, as other local authorities have argued in, in similar situations. Um, why was that? There was a few reasons for that. The primary reason was, I think, that we thought we had two very good other arguments. And as a matter of, of practical um, expediency, we had three days in front of the tribunal. I wanted to make sure that the two, what I thought were much stronger arguments, were fully aired. And I was concerned that if we went down uh, the third ground, being the ground about, um, I'm paraphrasing probably wrongly, but we, we haven't got the power or, the, or we're not allowed to use the information because of some statute, then I thought we would um, effectively not be able to focus on which I thought were the better areas. But legally, uh, I, I came to the conclusion at the end um, of my preparation for the case, before the case started, that I thought the argument was relatively weak. There are two reasons for this. Firstly, I think the Freedom of Information Act must effectively, as a matter of law, provide the power, the virus, whatever you like to say, for local authorities to release information. It provides, I think, a self-contained regime within itself, which provides the power, the reasons to say no, and all the other little bits around that itself. So there's the power to release the information. The actual argument itself about, well, we haven't got the power to do it, stems from memory from the fact that the one of the Finance Acts um, says that you can use it for two reasons, but doesn't say you can use it for any other reason. And I was also influenced in that by the well-being powers, which, of course, allow you to do within reason what you'd like, as long as it's not specifically um, prevented by other, you know, it's, it's not um, stopped by other legislation. And that's not, the free, from memory, the, when I looked at it, the Finance Act doesn't actually say you cannot use it for other things or supply, it just says these are the things you can use it for. Therefore, we're in that in interesting bit about well-being and about powers, and I just didn't want to take the tribunal there. I didn't think it was a particularly strong argument. But that all having been said, of course, it does... And I, I suppose I did have this semi in mind. It does leave it open to other authorities to argue that if they think it's appropriate. Finally, Andrew, you presented the case fully on behalf of your local authority. Any tips for any other lawyers in local government wishing to do the same? Yeah, I think I would encourage people to do it. I think if, if you're used to, for example, employment tribunals, I would describe it as a very similar sort of feel to an employment tribunal. You have to be prepared for quite a bit of legal argument in the sense that the tribunal are focusing in on particular sections and certainly in our case, and I'm sure in most of us, will then focus in on the meaning of particular words. So it becomes a very pure piece of law for you. They will no doubt expect skeleton arguments 
and in our case they wanted um, closing arguments in writing. So it's a lot of work, it's very legal, but it's, it's very worthwhile, and as I said, it's, it's a similar sort of environment to the Employment Tribunal, to somewhere where solicitors, I think, can, can do well. There's no, there are no strict rules of evidence, um, strict rules on evidence, sorry, and that, that, that I think, is sometimes a bar to uh, our side of the profession getting involved in advocacy, and, and, and it shouldn't stop you here. Um, as a general sort of learning point about the case, the other thing to bear in mind is that while the tribunal will focus in on freedom of information, obviously data protection quite often comes into play, so you've got to be ready for those arguments. They're also very interested, quite rightly, in the Human Rights Act. So again, you should be ready for those sorts of arguments. And there is, of course, massive linkages between those three pieces of legislation. And having a feel for that will be, will be very helpful. The other thing that I think I've learned from the case is where I think it's personally been very helpful to me, and hopefully I'll pass that on to colleagues here at Bexley, is the fact that it brings into high relief, if you like, the need when you rely on exemption to have evidence. And whilst the tribunal, I think, accepts as a matter of practicality that you're not always, when you make your first decision as, as a counsel, to rely on exemption, you're not, also, you're not at that stage going to have witness statements ready from, you know, in our case, the police or whoever, but you should start to get your... Um, your mind round the fact that in due course you may have to prove this. So you're looking for evidence to start with, you're looking for credible uh, support for what you're saying. And I think once you've actually sat there in front of a tribunal, had evidence, had witnesses giving evidence, it just reminds you of the need to really get that sort of thing lined up as early as possible and, 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 as, and, and, as, uh, and as fully as possible. Because in due course you may end up in front of the tribunal. Thank you very much for your time, Andrew, um, and hopefully we'll see more of you in, in the Information Tribunal in the future. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with that, but we'll, we'll, let's see. OK, thank you very much anyway. Thanks. On the 1st of June, the Information Tribunal ruled that the London Borough of Hammersmith and Fulham should disclose its policy relating to the towing of vehicles under parking regulations. In Miss P. Reith and the Information Commissioner, and the London Borough of Hammersmith and Fulham, the Council disclosed some information about its towing priorities, but indicated that there was more detailed information available that it did not wish to disclose. It relied on the Section 31 exemption, as it felt that disclosure would be likely to encourage unlawful parking in areas of low priority. The Commissioner agreed with this approach, but the Tribunal decided that not enough evidence had been adduced by the Council to show that its public functions would be prejudiced. The burden was on the Council to show a causal link between the disclosure and the prejudice which must be real, actual or of substance. The chance of prejudice occurring must be real and significant which had not been made out in this case. In any event, it was in the public interest to disclose this information. Section 36.2b provides an exemption when, in the reasonable opinion of the qualified person, disclosure would or would be likely to inhibit the free and frank provision of advice or the free and frank exchange of views for the purposes of deliberation. This exemption was examined by the Commissioner in a decision involving South Warwickshire NHS Trust, dated the 14th of June 2007. The complainant requested an audit report of the Trust's finances for the years 2004-2005. The Trust refused to provide this information and cited the exemption at section 36 2b. 
the commissioner felt that this was a reasonable view of the qualified person, but decided that in all the circumstances of the case, the public interest in maintaining the exemption did not outweigh the public interest in disclosing the information. In doing so, the commissioner followed the approach taken by the Information Tribunal in Guardian Newspapers Limited and Heather Brook and the Information Commissioner and the BBC, which set out guidance on the application of Section 36 and the public interest test. The Commissioner also stated that there is a substantial public interest in the understanding of issues surrounding the funding of the NHS, especially given the impact this has on such issues as hospital beds, staffing levels and patient waiting lists. It is now accepted that information about expenses claimed by public sector employees and public officials will have to be disclosed. There have been a number of decisions requiring disclosure of MPs' expenses, including one by the Information Tribunal, which we discussed last month. Clearly, the public have a right to know how MPs spend public money. However, recent rulings by the Information Commissioner have examined the link between the disclosure of information about the spending of public money and the impact on the private lives of MPs of such disclosure. In three decisions dated the 13th of June 2007 involving the House of Commons, the Commissioner ruled that the total amounts claimed by some individual MPs under the additional costs allowance should be released under specific headings. The allowance is the regime for MPs to reclaim expenses for running one home close to Westminster and one in their constituency. The Commissioner ruled that information under certain headings such as, for example, mortgage costs, hotel expenses, furnishings and maintenance should be disclosed. However, the Commissioner ruled that it is not necessary to disclose the full itemised details of every bit of expenditure incurred by an MP running his private household. To do so would invade the privacy of the MPs and their families. The Information Commissioner recently upheld the decisions by two local authorities to withhold information about the retirement packages of senior officers. In decisions dated the 16th of May and the 15th of May, involving Coldale Council and the City of York Council respectively, both organisations received separate requests under the Act for details relating to the retirement packages of former directors. Both councils refused to disclose the information, stating that the information constituted personal data and so was exempt under Section 40. The Commissioner agreed that it was personal data and it would be unfair to disclose such information. In both cases, the Commissioner took account of the seniority of the persons involved, but ruled that they still had a right to privacy. To me, this does not sit squarely with other decisions, including one involving Corby Council, where the Commissioner ruled that the salary details of a former temporary finance officer should be disclosed. He gave weight to the seniority of the individual, together with the fact that he was in charge of spending public money. One has to ask ourselves, what is the difference between disclosure of salaries of senior officers and their retirement packages? Both are essentially to do with remuneration and the spending of public money. Surely in both of the recent cases, the former directors were sufficiently senior and also made decisions involving the spending of public resources. The public have a right to know not just what they are paid during employment, but also upon retirement. A similar approach was taken in the case of George Elliott Hospital Trust, dated the 7th of June. Here the complainant requested information about the circumstances surrounding the departure of the former chief executive. I suspect that we will see a challenge to the Commissioner's approach in such cases before long.
If you're interested in access to personal data under the Freedom of Information Act, there are a number of articles on my website on this topic. Many local authorities have been or are currently going through the single status and job evaluation program. In such cases, some employees inevitably feel aggrieved at subsequent decisions taken about their role and revised salary by their employer. Some are turning to Freedom of Information to obtain more details. In a decision involving the London Borough of Southwark, dated the 5th of June 2007, the complainant asked the Council for information about the criteria used to determine the appropriate grades for its staff positions. The request required disclosure of information about the Council's application of the Hay Job Evaluation Scheme. The Council withheld the requested information under Section 43 of the Act on the grounds that release of the information would prejudice the commercial interests of the Hay Group. The Commissioner decided that the information should be released. He took account of the fact that the Hay Group did not object to the information being disclosed and in any event its value was limited without competitors getting hold of such information also attending training run by Hay. In any event, it was in the public interest to disclose such information to allow individuals to understand decisions which affect their lives and to challenge them. Disclosure would also allow people to see the integrity of the decision-making process. And finally, premium bonds. In a tribunal decision dated 5th of June involving Mr. Menier and the Information Commissioner and National Savings and Investment, the complainant requested all information about declared premium bond winners for November and December 2004 and January 2005. The tribunal was satisfied that the information requested, insofar as it identifies a premium bond winner or holder, had to be kept confidential by virtue of the premium savings bond regulations. Therefore, it was exempt under Section 44 of the Freedom of Information Act. Furthermore, the cost of retrieving the remainder of the information would exceed the appropriate cost limit. Sadly, it seems we will never know who won the premium bond prizes for November and December 2004 and January 2005. All I know is, it wasn't me. This podcast was brought to you by me, Ibrahim Hassan. I specialise in all aspects of information rights law, particularly freedom of information, data protection and surveillance law. My clients include local authorities the NHS and government agencies. If you'd like specific advice or training on any of your information law issues, please do not hesitate to contact me. Please continue to let me have your feedback. The scripts for all previous podcasts with clickable links are available on my website. If you'd like a copy of this month's script, please contact me via the website, which is www.informationlaw.org.uk. Until the next time, goodbye.